Hey, this is Emma Kate Libberry. In this episode, we interview Cameron Worth. This conversation was a Facebook Live, so you'll hear me asking him questions from our live fans. We discuss his sporting career as an Olympic rower, turned pro cyclist, and how he came to race at the pointy end of Ironman. We also talk about fatherhood, doping, and a whole lot more. Be sure to check out the Triathlete Facebook page for more of our live shows and to get your questions in to top pros, experts, and coaches. Okay, here's our conversation with Cameron. Hello and welcome to Triathlete Live. My name is Emma Kate Libberry and we are joined today by Mr. Cameron Worth. Cameron, how are you doing? Yeah, yeah not too bad. Not too bad. Um, uh, well, I guess like everyone, just adjusting to what the new normal is. I guess it's also a new normal wherever you are in the world. So, um, yeah, it's uh, sort of quite excited to actually sort of see other people from around the world at some point at a race sometime soon so they can tell me the stories about what their new normal is like. <laughs> yeah, so you're at home in Andorra right now and it's 9 p.m. Wednesday night, right? Yep, yep. And so you're in, so tell us about Andorra, uh, where it is in the world and uh, the kind of status of, of lockdown. I know you've been on a pretty strict lockdown, right? So Yeah, yeah. so uh, Andorra is a principality. Uh, it's in the Pyrenees. It's the easiest way to describe it. Um, we have a border with both Spain and France. Uh, it's two hours drive sort of directly inland from Barcelona, I guess is the easiest um, way to describe it. Um, and so Girona is about, as the crow flies, about 100k away. Um, about 150k on the bike when I mean, you have to go over a couple of mountains um, so yeah it's just an idea um, yeah and it was pretty incredible when uh, when everything sort of kicked off um, because we're actually not part of the EU we're you know very we're self-sufficient uh, I guess we're kind of like a very small version of Switzerland uh, very similar actually similar architecture um, I guess quite an educated sort of population uh, quite a healthy population like similar to boulder in that regard as in everyone here is very active yeah. um and so they were quite confident that it probably wouldn't be too much of a health risk here but we also couldn't allow what was going on in spain and france to um you know it was the middle of the ski season so there's a lot of tourists and stuff around so yeah i was out for a run um just like normal you know doing a long run whatever day it was uh, early march and um i think i ran for about two and a half hours and um, finished at the pool, uh, wanted to, just to go for a normal, like a swim, like I normally would just to loosen out a little bit. And, um, I got to the pool and they said, you know, we're shut. Um, and, uh, the whole country's shutting at three, you know, like a few hours later. And, um, I was like, oh, what do you mean? And they said, well, yeah, they're closing the borders and no one's allowed in or out and businesses are closed and go home. <laughs> and that was, uh, that so was you that. You were on a pretty tight lockdown for quite some time, right? So you were yeah. like similar to Spain and... Yeah, well, similar to Spain, but I guess here it's much easier to control. I mean, they, you know, you would literally, you know, you stay inside and, I mean, if you had a dog or whatever, you could go outside and walk the dog and that was really it. Kids weren't allowed out. Um, you you could go to the grocery store if you needed to, but really only one person from the house could household could go had police, um, traffic police, all sorts of, you know, uh, surveillance sort of driving around the principality. There's not many roads. So, um, checking on any movement and, um, whenever there was people, you know, in the early stages, of course, everyone kind of pushed it a bit. People were hiking and mountain biking because all of a sudden people couldn't, weren't at work. So they had all this time and they're all very active, um, scheme, you know, ski mountaineering and so forth. They were very quickly, you know, spotted and reported and, um, right, so you know, heavy strict. fines. So, Everyone did the right thing here uh, and um, they were able to get the situation under control. But they were very concerned because, as I said, we've only got one hospital and, you know, if it had oh, got wow. out of control here, it would have, you know, it could have been quite catastrophic. So, um, yeah, they had to go overboard and, uh, yeah, and in the end, we've, we've come out of it the other end. Um, I think, you know, if you look at New Zealand and Australia, they've also been quite aggressive yet. Now they're actually in quite a good position and that's, right. that's similar here to Andorra. So, um yeah, it was a bit tough so, at first, but we're good now. So you're swimming, biking, and running freely as normal now, but you were, uh, but you yeah, were, you were on pretty tight controls. I definitely didn't swim for a few months, um, and then uh, running, running. I was lucky. Uh, I spoke to the police straight away, and they let me run in a, 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 a ski station car park up at two thousand. I actually got to do some Kenyan training. They um, would basically let me go up there at daybreak. I'd have an hour, an hour and a half. They'd actually park at the entrance of the car park so no one else would come in. 
and oh, let wow. me run, okay. uh, which was pretty incredible. And um, so probably the fittest I've ever been, to be honest, uh, running at 2,100 metres every day for a few months <laughs> was uh, was actually a bit of a treat. Um, yeah. So it got you a bit of efficiency. But apart from that, obviously, it was on the, on the home trainer, um, which I'm quite happy with I, I love the home trainer um I love watching I mean I became an expert of the NFL draft I love ESPN I love any sports documentary there is um so um that was fantastic you know I love following uh you know the stock market so I'd have it on CNBC and uh yeah oh, wow. I could spend hours on there Quite every day without it without a drama in the world so yeah it was just the swimming and and that was the other thing with the swimming I mean I'm not a very good swimmer Okay, I'm, I'm obviously competitive. I'm, You're I'm getting better, Cam. Be, I'm good enough to be to what to do what I need to do, but I'm not at the level I'd like to be. Um, and so there wasn't really any point in me doing drills and all that stuff because I actually haven't developed a swimming, you know, technique anyway. You know, um, so I mean, I've got pretty good advisors, and we just decided just forget about it, do some mobility stuff, do some stretching stuff. So when you do get back in the pool. Um, you're hopefully, you know, a bit freer up, up, up top in the shoulders and um, right. hopefully you've forgotten all your bad habits and um, you can start from scratch. And, uh, yeah, I've been back in the pool a few weeks now and I think this is the biggest week of swimming I've ever done in my life. So, um, yeah, I feel great. Well, that's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like you're, yeah, you're getting into good shape. So uh, we have a lot of questions already lined up for you from people from our social media audience from the past week or so. Uh, yeah. But we'll also have questions coming in live and we encourage everybody at home to uh, submit their questions. And Cameron will be here for the next hour live, answering mm-hmm. as many questions as we can possibly fire at him. I can stay longer. I'll be up for quite a while. He's, <laughs> he's a bit of a night out at the moment. So he's, he's, well, he's born here. So he's uh, got that Spanish gene of wanting to party. Yeah, so you're a, new, you're a new dad, right? Five weeks old, yeah. Wyatt Worth. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, little White Worth. Yeah, he's uh, got his little passport organized today. He's a little Andorran. So, um, yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, had, his cool. Little, had to have a little photo taken. Yeah, that's so a bit how, of a challenge. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about how fatherhood's been treating you. It's been, like you say, five weeks. Uh, yeah. How, that must oh. be quite a change to the system. Yeah, kind of. I mean, they don't need their dad much. They rely on their mum. <laughs> like, yeah, he nurses really well. He's um, he's a bit of a piglet. He likes to eat, and um, yeah, he uh, he sleeps really well. You know, through the night. So I I don't even. Yeah, he doesn't wake me. He wakes up usually once during the night. Doesn't wake me. So I've been sleeping normally, um, <laughs> being able to train normally. Um, it's just I guess. You know, I haven't had as much time to troll Lionel and do things like that that I normally like to do on Instagram. So, um, you know, it's been a bit We did have great. that question. We did have that question. <laughs> will, you troll, will you be social media trolling less now that you're a dad? Yeah. So yeah, well, I'm, surprised that, I'm surprised it took us uh, seven minutes to get there. But, but yeah, there you go. Well, it's kind of I either spend less time eating or recovering or, you know, less time on Instagram. And at the moment, I've, I've chosen less time on Instagram. I've tried to focus on my um, athletic <laughs> side of things but who knows I might restructure my, my timing a little bit you know as we as we go on because I certainly miss it I don't want him to think I'm getting soft <laughs> as if he would but yeah so you talked about your athletic career there and it's obviously been quite quite a remarkable one um, for those that don't know uh, Cam's background he started life as an Olympic rower you uh, rode for Australia in the 2004 Athens Games and then uh, you were racing at quite you know world-class level up till 2006 right and then and then you transitioned right, to pro cycling. Right. Yeah. So how did how did that transition come about? Tell us a little bit about the uh, that story. Uh, I guess I mean like anyone, obviously it's a shame name, but you know, followed Lance and you know inspired a whole generation of people to want to ride their bikes and um, and then you know maybe race race and, and in my case, um, I certainly had the dream of racing yet never to the point where I actually raced, you know, in Australia when I was, when I was rowing, never even thought about doing a bike race, but I was in, and I was in uh, Varese, which is in Northern Italy uh, in 2004, five, uh, I think it was four or five. I think it might've been five actually. Um, and, uh, what was it? Six. Yeah. I can't remember. It was one of those years. It was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. I know it was definitely four. And, uh, Ivan Basso was riding around and, um, uh, you know, he was behind the. I just remember seeing behind the motorbike and thinking, "Whoa, that just looks amazing! It just looks way cooler than what I'm about to go and do, which was go rowing." And um, and sort of 
seeing him just sort of training and then him going head to head with Armstrong at the tour, you know, like a couple of weeks later was just like, wow, like I'm here training as well. Like he goes and does that and I go to rowing. I mean, maybe I could go and race my bike instead, you know, and, and that was sort of what I guess planted the seed for me. It was just, was just seeing that image of, of him and, um, and him training and, uh, and sort of being able to kind of feel like you could touch it, you know, and then, right. um, yeah, and then I actually, uh, you know, 2006 then it was. So it was so far that I saw that. 2006, I got tendonitis in my wrist and uh, and couldn't uh, couldn't couldn't row during the camp in Europe and um, ended up having to go back to Australia for surgery. But while I was in Europe, while we were waiting for it to heal, um, I was on the bike on the on the just the home trainer, and I just loved it. You know, I felt like a professional cyclist even though I wasn't on the road <laughs> and, um, just sitting there in the rowing shed on the home trainer and uh and just sort of just developed a passion for it there anyway and I went home had surgery got it better went to worlds I was actually fourth which was you know quite a good result um but you know I'd kind of already got it in my mind that you know I, I enjoyed facing forwards more than backwards and um I went home and um had a force sort of few months off rowing because of the risk it had blown out in the final at the world and uh, needed some extra recovery. And uh, yeah, I just dedicated that to cycling and, and did the national championships at the end of all that. And, and then was fully expecting to sort of go back to rowing, but, but um, did quite well. And, you know, the national system sort of suggested, would you be interested in changing sports or considering it? And I thought, absolutely. And that was, uh, that was really how it started. You know, it was just a sequence of, sequence of events you know um right and then you were racing yeah. you were racing on the pro on the pro tour scene for a, a solid decade right for liquid gas well, calendar yeah, i started in 07 and um and then you know it took me a few years to get into the world tour uh 2010 i was with a smaller team that was when i first did the did the giro with an italian team and then i went to liquid gas and i was there until i stopped in the end of 2014 um but incidentally uh the first year i was there in 07 i was out training and that was when Bassa was on his ban he was on his uh suspension and um he if you yeah you wouldn't read about this but he literally had a flat tire and he didn't have a pump and he was on the side of the road <laughs> and i rode past with a mate and i was like that's even Basso, we've got to stop so we stopped and said hello and we're saying hello and then after and he spoke great english after about five minutes of being really quite cordial he said do you have a pump by any chance? So <laughs> luckily I had a pump and um, helped him pump up his tire and uh, we actually rode for a bit. And then, yeah, then, you know, uh, there came a point where I had a choice sort of to turn professional and be teammates, um, be teammates with him, you know, liquid gas, yeah. which was, which was just incredible. So um, yeah, it was pretty amazing how that kind of, you know, you see it and dream it and, um, and it kind of comes true. So yeah, yeah. very cool journey. Yeah. Mm. So we have a good question from Ben on Facebook. He says, I'm working on going pro for long course distance currently. Do you have any tips on that you learned on becoming a pro for triathlon? Uh, you seem to have had a different career tra trajectory than most. Is there anything yeah. that you wish you had known back then? Uh, definitely respect the level of competition. Dep I mean, it depends on your goals. Of course, I'd, I'd come from two other sports where I'd you know, been at a, re well, I guess competed at the highest level, hadn't reached the highest level because I hadn't dominated either sport. Um, but, you know, I'd had a bit of success in rowing. I'd been world champion at underage level. As I said, I'd, you know, fourth at the Worlds. I'd been to the Olympics and then cycling, I'd won some races and, and done quite well in some bigger ones and, and been part of some of the biggest teams. So, you know, I had a pretty high standard of, you know, of expectation of competition. So when I came to Ironman, I expected to just easily, you know, be able to compete with the best. And um, and I got absolutely flogged in, in every discipline, including on the bike early on. You know, I, um, even I remember in Arizona in 2016, I, I trained like hell. I wanted to try and break four hours on the bike. And uh, I think I rode that day. I've, I've never trained like, you know, I hadn't raced in the world tour for a couple of years. It was a little bit of a personal goal. You know, I'd actually kind of thought I'd at that point I'd go back and work. You know, I'd go to go to start working finance. It was sort of a bit of a last event, just to just to sort of see what I could get out of myself. And um, I felt like I'd failed. You know, in, in my quest to do triathlon. And uh, yeah, that day I rode four oh five, and Lionel rode thirty seconds faster than me. And I'd never trained harder. I don't think ever on the bike leading up to that. 
And then he got off and ran a 2.45 or something. That was Arizona in 2016. 16, yeah. I was just like, whoa, that's nuts. And um, so just, yeah, respecting the level of the competition, I think is these guys are, are really, really, really good. And I think there's a bit of a stigma of, you know, they're not the best swimmers or they're not the best cyclists or they're not the best runners. Well, the, the standard has just come up to the point where, <laughs> you know, they almost are the best in all three disciplines <laughs> on any given day. You know, you could find in the sport, you could find one of the best swimmers in the world, one of the best runners and certainly some of the best cyclists. So, um, yeah, don't, you know, get your expectations mixed up with your capabilities, I think would be great because in my case, it almost turned me away from the sport. You know, I mean, that was like, oh, God, you know, I've got no chance here. Um, and almost quit and um, and so I'd hate for someone new to come in and get their you know get their ass walloped and go oh look I can't do it you know um, it takes yeah, time was... you have to learn learn the trade and respect the distance you know you can't hide in an Ironman you'll get found out somewhere if you haven't done the work so um, it takes it takes time to, to build up to that and um, yeah so just be patient. Yeah, I was going to ask you if that first race, that Arizona or, you know, those early Ironman races when you did get your ass kicked, whether they were motivating or whether they were kind of demotivating because you were like, oh, I have so much to do in order to really bridge up to where I want to be. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess there was two parts. Like I had fun in, with it in 2015. That was just part of, you know, being a brand ambassador for Cannondale and doing it as a bit of fun. And I actually did quite well, but I didn't really care because I wasn't, you know, taking it seriously. And then in 2016, they suggested I take it seriously. And that was when, you know, I went to Cairns and really got flogged. And that was a terrible, you know, really tough experience. And I kind of wanted to quit at that point. But, you know, I felt I can't quit with that sort of performance. And then I accepted that I couldn't run, you know, at that level um, because I just didn't have the years of conditioning. If I tried to run a lot, I'd get injured. Um, back then, you know, it was after seven, eight years riding a bike. You know, you, you obviously don't have the, the toughness in the legs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I readjusted my goals and um, went and swam with Jerry Rodriguez at Tower 26 and, and, and obviously trained like hell on the bike. And my goal was to get out of the water – or sorry, get off the bike quicker than Yarn's world record, you know, in, in Roth that, that time that he did. And, um, and so that was sort of like a – if I can do that, I might consider learning how to run. But to be honest, I kind of thought this was just a nice little, maybe achievable goal for me to go out of sport with my head held somewhat high. And um, yeah, and uh, I, was, I was certainly, you know, fortunately I was sort of able to do that. Um, but yeah, it, that, so in that case, it wasn't a bad experience. You know, the fact that Lionel got off and ran 2.45 and I ran 3 30 or something <laughs> shuffled through um, because I expected that at that point but certainly the first experience in Cairns was really tough to take you know I right, thought I'd right, right. of everyone and and yeah it was was horrible and so I definitely wouldn't want you know I think everyone goes through moments like that no matter who you are in the sport you know that that, that, that sort of tough experience and it's cliche but you know it's not about how hard you get knocked down but how how, how well you stand back up again. So, um, yeah, if you, if you want to do it, you know, like anything, commit commit to the long haul um, if you really want it or um, just set yourself some realistic goals and and try and, you know, yeah, tick them off. Don't be um, don't bite off more, more than you can chew. That's which is certainly <laughs> what I did and it, and it nearly backfired. <laughs> yeah, so t- talk to us a little bit about how you transitioned then from uh, the pro cycling to to pro triathlon so that sounds like it kind of happened around the 2016 2017 time but yeah what, well, what, is, what inspired that what, what what led you to triathlon yeah well the the first year i sort of took off to go to to go to the u.s and was more just you know as part of my role with canada i was just sort of fluffing around and doing a few events here and there gravel gravel events and and whatnot just grand fondos and things for you know a brand ambassador role they asked me to do and my goal was to work in finance. So I was meeting different people in that industry. A lot of them, you know, a lot of finance people are big fans of endurance sports, particularly rowers, cyclists and triathletes. So I was meeting some great people and had some great opportunities to work in that industry. And I guess in 2016, I started to take that a bit more seriously. And 
um, you know, actually even, you know, started looking at the studies I'd need to do and kind of decided a, a firm that I'd like to work with based in LA. And, and that was really where I saw myself going into 2017. And 2016, you know, doing uh, particularly Arizona, as I said, was a bit of a, a way to go out of the sport and have some, you know, have a little bit of pride that uh, I, I was an okay athlete. And um, I went home to Tasmania uh, for the, yeah, for that Christmas, so their summer. And, um, you know, Richie Port lives there, we're great mates, so just thought, oh, yeah, ride with him. You know, I was, I was going to go back to the US in, uh, you know, January, February and start working in, in finance. And, yeah, the, the head coach of um, Team Sky at the time, Tim Kerrison, he's still the head coach there now at Ineos, called me out of the blue um, one, one night and um, asked me if I'd like to come and train with Froomey for a couple of weeks up on the Gold Coast. I mean, I didn't even know Froomey was in Australia. And um, he called me on WhatsApp. I didn't even know WhatsApp had a calling feature. It was the first time I'd ever got a call on WhatsApp. And um, I thought, wow, wow, I get one more, like, last... So last hurrah, go and train with the guy that just won the tour for the third time <laughs> for a couple Not of weeks. Gig. What an experience, you know, just to keep him company. And we got on great. Um, and and I didn't take a power meter or a heart rate monitor. I thought, right, I'm just going to do whatever it takes to just not get too far behind and not, you know, become a burden on, on his camp. And uh, in the end, you know, it meant that, you know, I was – he wasn't able to drop me. Um, Tim actually called it Ironman training because he'd actually make me start, because so, I had no power meter or anything, he'd make me start 12 metres behind Chris. I kind of knew what the intervals were and try and just hang in there and then do what he was doing. And um, to the point where on the last day, we were staying, Tim's got a house at the top of Mount Tambourine, we were staying there. We did like a two-man team time trial on uh, up Tambourine. It was about a 20-minute effort. We're doing sort of 30-second turns. And I remember after a couple of minutes for him, he said, oh, that's 2.45 seconds. And then about 10 minutes later, he said, oh, let's do a minute turns because you could tell he was hurting. And I was like, wow, you know, maybe I have still got a bit of juice left in the tank. And, um, and you know, when that camp ended, both in, uh, both Chris and Tim both said, listen, mate, like you, you can't quit sport. Like right. <laughs> you can still, you can still, still too much in the tank. Yeah, exactly. You know, that you, you sure you don't like psych me anymore? I mean, what, what, is, what do you want to do? And I said, well, actually, fell in love with this Ironman sport. I, I love competing in that sport. That's something I actually get on the start line and I want to win. I didn't feel like that in cycling. And, um, Interesting. And Tim said, well, you know, I think you could be quite good at that. And, um, and so that was that. You know, they said if you're prepared to, you know, give it a go, the team will give you as much support as we can. Um, see if you can get to Kona, qualify as a pro. We talked through the process of that, which was the qualification system, the ranking points. Mm-hmm. And that was it. So um, I had a pretty simple brief, you know, figure out how to get to Kona and then we'll go from there. And, um, and that's sort of how it worked out. I went to Europe and did some camps with the team and, um, yeah, it came down to sort of the last, last race in Sweden in, uh, in 2017. I needed to come second to get enough points to get 50th in the rankings. <laughs> and uh, I'd just done a two-week camp with just, again, just Chris and I and his wife and, and now my wife, Fallon, um, and his, his little boy at that time um, up in the, in Chattel and he was getting ready for the Vuelta. Um, I remember one day it was really cool. We did this, we were meant to do a long ride, like seven hours and we went past some, some lake, uh, some near, somewhere near Morzine somewhere and Tim said, right, Cameron, put your swimming gear in the car because you haven't done much while you've been here. You've been all riding with Chris and you can do a swim and Chris is going to go off and do whatever climb it was. You know, he'll do an hour and a half, come back, we'll have quick bite to eat and then we'll ride home i was like okay cool you know we do a lot of sessions like that and um and anyway we got to the thing and chris said to tim can i swim with cameron <laughs> so chris <laughs> got in the water with me can he swim is he a good swimmer no well, he floated he didn't drown <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and uh yeah and that was like i was just like wow what a i mean how i couldn't believe the situation i was in you know and and so, you know, he's getting ready for the world. We had yeah, our swim, we had something to eat. We got back on the bike and just got on with it. And the way that he treated me with respect, you know, made me start to believe in myself, um, mm-hmm. believe in my own ability that I definitely lost. And, you know, when we finished, wrapped up that camp, you know, he said to me, listen, mate, you know, 
you don't have to do anything more than you're more than capable of doing. Right? What I've seen you do the last two weeks, like you can go to this race and you're going to be just fine. Just don't overthink it. And um, sure enough, I think at that point, my best marathon was like a 3.12. And uh, I remember getting on the run and going, right, just be calm. I had a nice lead. Just just be calm, just be calm. And, you know, if you get into that final 10K and you need to race, you know, just dig deep then. And, yeah, I think I ended up running a 3.01. Uh, Clement Alonso Vercoen, he passed me in the last lap. Um, and he went past pretty quick. And, I, you know, I felt like Gumbert. I was so paranoid about coming third. You know, I was like, no, I've got to come second. There was still 10 minutes back to third. Like, I can't throw it. And then I remember the last 10, 2K, I started to crank it up. And I was catching him again, but I'd left it too late. But I was able to qualify for Kona as a pro and, you know, then all of a sudden, you know, much more support from the team, you know, and um, right. and then uh, I went to Wales a few weeks later because that was already planned. We thought we sort of started to think towards the next Kona and I was able to win that. Um, and that the, the Sweden race was the start of the Vuelta, the same day the Vuelta started. Mm-hmm. And Wales was actually the last day of the Vuelta. And I finished uh, Wales and I picked up my phone and there's a message from Chris, you know, in red, writing. You know, the stage was still going on with, like, you know, a congratulations message saying, good on you, Worthy, you know, you knew you could do it, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, yeah, I just, <laughs> you got to pinch me. I mean, I, you think back to 12 months ago having Lionel ride faster than me when I, you know, trained what I thought was the hardest I could ever train. And he'd ridden quicker and then run like a gazelle, uh, you know, making me feel like there was no hope in the sport to, um, to being in that position was, was just, was just remarkable. And, um, and just a reminder that, uh, you know, if you, yeah, you just, sometimes if you just hang in there a bit longer than you want to, yeah, if you've got a dream, you've got to go after it. Yeah. Yeah. Leave your hand in the fire. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, one of the questions we had from social earlier in the week was what would you do if you feel demotivated after demotivated after a couple of hard training days? Um, doesn't really happen. Does, does that happen? It sounds like <laughs> no. it might not with you. I get the feeling it might not, but no, 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 I guess I, maybe I, when you're feeling I down. Love, yeah, I love training. I mean, I, I do. Even and, and the harder the better, to be honest. I mean, when I'm suffering, I know that that's because my body's doing something that it doesn't want to do and it's making a change. And, mm-hmm. um, and so I appreciate that. One thing I definitely have learned, and it was actually something that I did way back in the rowing days, was Sundays I used to just I was at, when I was at the Institute of Sport they would lock the facility you couldn't go to the gym you couldn't go to the pool you couldn't go to the rowing sheds obviously you basically couldn't do anything except maybe go to the park and kick a football or you know do whatever oh, and so you were you were forced to have a day off like a complete day of rest and encouraged to sleep in you know and um, and so breakfast was not served till late, you know, in the dining hall. Normally the dining hall was open at, you know, 5.30, 6 or something. And on Sundays it wouldn't open till 9. Um, and, and so I learned the importance of like you train real hard up until Saturday and then take a day off. Now what I love about Kona is it's on a Saturday. So I generally base my whole year around that. <laughs> and so I train to raise, you know, train up until Saturday being a big day and then have a rest on Sunday. And, and sometimes I might do a light swim or if I've got mates around that are going on a little ride, I might go on a little ride. Um, but generally I just do nothing. And particularly if in that situation, if I've had a real tough couple of days, I, I'm, I'm confident now to take a day off completely and do something that I want to do, whether it's play golf or go shopping or just be with my wife or now my son, um, whatever it happens to be. Um, just be, I mean, last year when I didn't have a son, um, you know, I would sit at home and watch sport. You know, I'd have it queued up all day. That's the beauty of the time zone here. You've got all the European sports and then the American sports, especially Sunday when football season's in. Um, NASCAR true, true. football, you know, you've got bike racing, probably Formula One, MotoGP. You can have a stack Sunday sitting on the couch doing nothing. And, yeah, that's quite uh, unusual for a pro to take a complete day off. So is it a complete day off every week? Or complete almost? day off. And I, leading up to sort of obviously that period, Last year with uh, Italy and, and Kona, I was doing that for mm-hmm. eight weeks straight. I'd have Sunday completely off. I uh, wouldn't nice. do a thing. Maybe go and sit in the ice bath. Uh, we might walk up. <laughs> so um, there's a waterfall about a K from the house here. So, um, yeah, so that would be my best suggestion. Just take a break. Take, you know? yep. One, even two days. You know, um, I've actually had a big block of training here, uh, you know, and, and a lot of it's been inside. So yeah, I guess mentally it's, 
challenging to stay motivated. And mm-hmm. but I pretty much kept training like at a, quite a good volume for 14 weeks straight. And this last week I was feeling a bit tired. You know, Monday it must have been Tuesday, Wednesday when I did a long run, and then we had a team event on on Swift on the weekend. And you know, I'm sort of racing against quite good athletes, so that was quite painful. And so we decided this week to have a week you know, a rest, a bit of a rest week. week. Yeah. And, and I was planning on sort of riding and running yesterday and I still, and that was, you know, Monday was always going to be an easy, it was off. And then yesterday I just, I didn't feel like it. I just went for a swim. And then sure enough, I woke up today and felt great and went for a good, nice ride and went for a swim and went for two runs, you know? Yeah. So, so the body, the body and mind bounce back when you, when you met them and when back, you give them. Give yeah. it a proper rest. You know, people just, if you're semi rest, you know, you, you go out for an easy day, but you're looking at your heart rate or your power meter or running and watching your watch or worrying about what the clock says in the pool. That's not a rest. You know, you need yeah. to switch. Your brain needs as big a rest as, as anything in this sport. Um, because oh, for sure. Yeah. There's a lot to think about. So, yeah, rest. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Kona, that little race that usually happens in October. And obviously it's been yeah. moved this year uh, to February 2021. So there'll be two Konas next year. Uh, we've had a few questions about that. And uh, Jeff has asked, how much of a challenge will it be to peak for Kona in both February next year and October? And what are well, your I'm thoughts? Obviously, yeah, what are your thoughts athlete. around that? I've done eight triathlons in a year before. <laughs> <laughs> in a year, so. You'll be like, I'm all right. <laughs> it's a really light schedule for me. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think that it's, I mean, I think it's great. I mean, that, that normally you'd, you obviously would have a couple of objectives, I guess, the last couple of years. I try and, I've tried to do well in, um, you know, in, uh, in Roth uh, around that time of the year or, or mm-hmm. um, Nice or Zurich and then obviously again in Kona. That's obviously quite a bit closer to closer in, in time than February and, and, uh, and October. But, we, you know, we haven't done much now. I think, I think more the challenge is the fact that we haven't done anything now. We've been through this period. You know, we've had a long period of training now we don't know really what's going to happen with racing um, to, before the end of the year. And so for start, for example, if they say all the racing they're talking about in October, November, you know, what do you do now? You start training hard for that. So really you've been training all year and then you train for that. And then you kind of going to think you want to break. And I know from experience, it takes me a good three, four months to really get back to a point where I can train at the level I need to, to get into my peak, you know, of, of base work again, after having a proper rest, you know, it's not till, you know, March, April that I start to feel you like I'm able to, you know, race, do the race sessions sharp. That I, yeah. yeah. You will be able to do the sessions that I need to do to get race sharp. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the biggest challenge is dealing with what is with February, you know, is, is what's going to happen between now and February and, um, and making sure you're, you're fresh and, and ready for February, because if you go to February tired, you know, February's going to disappear. March, you'll, you know, you'll start to get going again. And, um, you know, all of a sudden it'll be June or July and you're like, whoa, wait a minute, Kona's only three months away. And, uh, you know, you could really, you could really biff up the whole year. So, yeah, the biggest challenge is going to be managing yourself between now and February. Right, right, right. And so earlier this year, it was January this year, wasn't it, that you, I mean, you had been racing full-time professionally for solely on the focus of Ironman racing. And then it was yeah. January this year where you announced you were going to focus entirely on pro cycling and be part of Team Ineos and race, you know, race with them on their schedule, but then mm-hmm. focus on Kona when it came time to focus on Kona. So talk to us a little bit about what your, your true focus is now and like when, when Team Ineos is back up to racing and when triathlon, you know, the tri, the tri season is back in, back in full force, what's going yeah. to be your focus and, and how are you going to balance that? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I mean, that's, I guess, with Kona in February, it kind of presents, I guess, the perfect scenario for me and, you know, for the team um, is that uh, there's a very condensed schedule between, you know, a proposed schedule between August and, uh, and November. And, um, you know, I could, I've already qualified for Kona, so we don't have to worry about that part. And uh, yeah. so in theory, you know, I can 100% commit to the team now and, and do that. Um, now, initially, that was sort of the, the plan was to basically do that up until June, you know, when they'd break for the tour. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, if 
for whatever bizarre reason, I came back into racing, got very comfortable with it, was one of the best guys in the team and they needed me for the tour, then obviously I would have done it. But the deal was that, you know, up until that point where, you know, they're obviously trying to nurse nurse the, the, the main guys through to be ready for the tour. So, you know, lighten the load where possible. That was where I'd be mostly needed early in the year to, to make sure that those guys got to the tour fresh and ready to go. And... Um, and so then I'd have from, you know, June, basically, when they'd go to the Dauphiné or Tour of Swiss, then I'd start focusing on preparing for Kona. So I have a good three or four months, which is it's plenty. Having said that, in that period, my training was never going to change. I was still going to train as if I was racing for Ironman. It's just that I wouldn't be going to any Ironmans. I'd be going to a bike race, which... Cause, because obviously when I go to a bike race, like, say, I went to Tour of Algarve in Portugal in February you're there for five days and I went for one run on the last day um, after the time trial, but uh, I wasn't able to swim or run. So, you know, we expected that there was going to be weeks periodically where I wouldn't be able to do the others. So I couldn't exactly afford to be specifically training on the bike because then the cumulative effect of how much I would lose on the triathlon front would be, would put me in a major disadvantage for Kona. Whereas we felt that if I just kept training normally, but, Instead of going to Ironmans, I went to bike races. It could potentially give me a boost on the bike, um, give mm-hmm. me a boost in yep. stimulus. You know, physiologically, you're training, you know, you're racing and using completely different systems often, <laughs> the high-end yes. stuff in a race. And um, and then, you know, just go back into my Ironman training as normal. So, you know, it was never sort of geared around, you know, switching focus to be the best bike rider I could be. If I happened to end up, racing extremely well under those circumstances fantastic but we were very confident that i'd be able to fulfill a role on the team you know with the work that i that i already do for ironman because i've been able to train with the guys over the past few years as i said about training with chris even as far back as 2017 training at that level is not an issue it's dealing with the adaptations and the different stresses of racing which are the the biggest you know challenge i was going to face and you know, the first couple of races, I certainly wasn't the worst in the race. So, um, you know, I seem to slot back in, uh, I seem to slot back in pretty well. Yeah. Um, and I think it always struck me and it struck, struck maybe a lot of people that you were at heart an Ironman, but the, the team in your setup was obviously one that was huge, you know, hugely beneficial to your Ironman training. So, uh, yeah, it, it lent itself nicely to what you were, you were aiming to do. Yeah. I, I mean, guess. what was really interesting just after the first couple of races is I'd come home and okay i felt a bit sharper on the bike but where i felt really really sharp was running and swimming because oh you had that different train like pain tolerance again i mean where you go from doing so much work even in the race i mean everyone is really in control of their own effort i mean okay in the bike i guess i'm more in control of what's going on the most um because either most are either following me or i'm in front and they're doing their own thing and um i mean that's just how it's been thus far so uh, and then on the run, it's what you can do. You know, I mean, no one does anything remarkable. You know, I mean, the, the guys are still running the same times they've always run and, and have been running for a long period of time. You know, it's, it's sort of like a bit of a set speed in that regard. So it's a very controlled thing. Whereas in a bike race, you've got to go as fast as the guy at the front. You can't just go, oh, no, he's going too hard. I'll let him go and I'll ride him back because you don't, you don't ride back 200 people. <laughs> the bus is gone. So... Um, so it was amazing getting back into running and, and having a different tolerance to pain again and, and, and what I felt suffering was, you know, getting the heart rate up again and those bits and pieces. So I think we feel like we've sort of discovered there's potentially quite a few other, you know, little hidden benefits we didn't even think of that just quite from going to some racing, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll transfer over to, to racing Ironman. Yep. Yeah, so we are just a little bit over halfway. So we, we want to uh, remind everybody at home to keep sending us questions. Cameron's still going strong. He's, there's still plenty <laughs> more left in his tank. I know there is. Yeah, yeah, uh, we've got yeah. some fun questions for you here, Cameron. Okay. Uh, if you had to pick three athletes to form a pack with you on the bike in Kona, who would they be? Uh, I mean, well, I have to pick three others. I don't yeah. Have three others. Yeah, well, obviously, um, you know, the, the guys that have, I've, I've looked up to, you know, Lionel and, um, and, and Sebi, uh, and, uh, you know, Joe Skipper, just because I think he's just great. I just love Joe. I think he's, uh, he's just great for the sport and, and you know, he's, he always, he's always going to give it 155,000% that guy. So, um, yeah, they, definitely those, those three guys would be the ones I'd want to be out there with. Nice. That's some horsepower. 
Nicola on Facebook wants to know, is it possible to win Kona in both February and October? And how would you celebrate if you did? <laughs> that would be well, quite that would be quite a good season. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, to me, it's it's so exciting the prospect of there being two Konas. I mean, you obviously think about if you could win, you could have won it twice in the space of, of whatever space it is. Of ten eight months. months, yeah, yeah, eight, eight and, months. Uh, yeah, eight months. I mean, that would just be just be remarkable. Uh, uh, you know, my my one of my first rowing coach, Tim Hawkins. Um, who was, you know, hugely, in, in, um, you know, influential in in my development as an athlete, just in general, and my principles. Um, but one of the things he once told me was, um, worry about what you're going to do after, once you cross the finish line, when you cross the finish line. So mm-hmm. um, I got no idea how I'd celebrate, but uh, I guarantee I'd make sure a hell of a lot of other people enjoy it with me. That's nice. <laughs> for sure. <Nice. laughs> Uh, another question that we got from Facebook, uh, and you mentioned you mentioned Lance early early in the show. But what are your thoughts on the recent Lance Armstrong ESPN documentary, uh, especially with references to high level endurance sports and doping? Uh, well, firstly, he swims like me. Um, if, I don't know if you watched his technique. He's got his big right arm, and then like flaps his left arm over. So it actually gave me quite a lot of hope. I mean, he's a wonderful swimmer. He was one yeah, of the best. Yeah, he was swimmers. like a high school swimmer, wasn't he? he yeah, was, yeah, yeah, he was one of the best swimmers in the sport. So it was, it was pretty cool to see that. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I go through waves. I've gone through waves with Lance. I'll be honest. I mean, I, you know, back when I was rowing and it was all happening, he was my hero. Absolute, you know, didn't matter. Yeah, people would say whatever they want, like for most people. And, you you know, Lance is the greatest. And and the, the, the thing is, you can't forget the incredible things that he did do, the hope that he gave so many people. Um, what's what's sad is, you know, I guess the way he personally treats people. And, and um, I actually did meet him in uh, 2015 in Aspen and, yeah, I, I didn't get a very good... It wasn't like I expected. I was actually quite oh. excited, even at that point. And, um, and yeah, I, I, we didn't really... I guess we didn't really hit it off. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I've got some great friends and a lot of friends that he's friends with. And um, But, no, I, I certainly didn't warm to him at all. Um, and, and certainly a lot of the things you hear about him, I guess, sort of came across. But, you know... Um, it's it's a it's pretty tough, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to judge someone like that um, when they've been in that position, and then you've got other people there that you know were happy to fess up when they were about to get in trouble. You know, I think that's that's the, that's the part that I don't like is you have people um, that proclaim to be now you know fighting the cause, um, you know, uh, the, the anti-doping crusaders because they admitted to it. But they admitted to it because they were about to go to jail. You know, <laughs> they, like, they could have admitted to it a hell of a long time ago. And they know who they are. They're all in that video. And um, they could have said something a long, long time ago and um, and changed the course of everything back then. But they chose not to. They were they were all capitalising on it. And um, and so Lance, to his to his credit, he never sold anyone else out. And um, and I think that. Back to the, I know this is a bit of a roundabout answer, but I mean, this is just my personal opinions of Lance. Um, but back to the, the, I guess, the doping side of it, um, it's, I know it's a big change. I mean, when I came into the sport, I certainly have never felt that you don't succeed because you don't cheat. I've never felt that. When I didn't do well in cycling or the level I wanted to, early on um i was because i wasn't good enough you know i I just knew i wasn't good enough to do the sport well and now having spent so much time with chris and garrett and then young guys like pavel sivakov you know obviously egan bernal he lives here in andorra you know last year he lives he lived just up the street about 100 meters from me you know i used to see him sitting in the river the same river i sit in to cool my legs down after training um you know that the sport now is is extremely different and it's happened because it's just not acceptable amongst the athletes. The athletes decided, you know, I mean, anti-doping, you know, they're, they're there, but everyone's always a step ahead. But fortunately in cycling, the change came from within the sport. And back in Lance's day, that change was the opposite way. You know, they were all accepting of it and they all did it and they all, 
you know, just accepted that was part of it. Whereas now in this day and age, you know, you have a scandal and a team closed, a hundred people lose their jobs, you know, and that just isn't acceptable. If, if writers feel that they think there's a writer that's doing something wrong, they're going to say something, you know, they get, they're not going to risk losing their livelihood because of, uh, you know, because someone wants to cheat. So, um, so you think the situation is better now and there has been significant change. And I mean, did you ever come up against it when you were, you know, when you were cycling in your pro cycling career? No, no. I mean, at my, once I was there, there was certainly an old guard and then the new guard. And if you weren't part of the boys club, well, you just weren't, I mean, I was also never shown drugs at school because my mates probably knew I'd never even bother trying it. And years later, they've always, I've always, I found out a lot of them are really into marijuana and <laughs> ecstasy and different things. And yet I'd say, all right, guys, I never even knew. And they said, well, you were too busy doing sport. We knew you wouldn't too touch it. So we, yeah. And so uh, I was, you know, so grateful to all my mates at school for, for not, you know, um, for not showing me that. And I guess when I came into the sport, where there was still the odd scandal going on, I guess that was probably the situation. But now it's certainly transformed significantly to it's just not even discussed, you know what I mean? Right. And if there is any suspicion of anyone, there is a lot of talk about it and that athlete is quickly removed. You know, they either don't get a contract, they're all of a sudden not racing. Um, heaven forbid they actually do get caught, but, you know, they're removed pretty quickly from the sport. You know, there's certainly no, um, you know, even, you know, they had that Austrian thing last year and, it's the guys that are sort of trying to, you got to remember these guys make quite a lot of money, you know, and they do. And yeah. the difference between taking a cup, you know, a bit of this and keeping your job, you know, they weren't even guys that win anything. They were guys that were just sort of keeping their job, you know, making maybe, you know, a few hundred thousand, 500,000 or something like that. But the difference is working in your local town in the bike shop or something. If you don't have some sort of, you know, qualifications or outlook, you know, career prospects, I mean, I can see how they would make that decision, you know, thinking oh, I'm not really going to affect too much. I'm not winning anything. I'm just doing my job for the team. Um, so, and that tends to be where the problem is now. Fortunately, it's not, you know, obviously at the highest level. And um, yeah. yeah. And it's I guess no one's going to, people are going to not want to believe me because of the people I hang around with, but because of the people I hang around with and train with, that's how I know that's the fact. That's just how it is. So, um, yeah. It's and is great. triathlon in your experiences, in your experience, is triathlon any better when it comes to, to, to doping to what's the, what's your experience in triathlon? I wouldn't say it's any better. I would say that it's the same. Um, you know, I, I mean, I personally, obviously everyone knows there's a couple of guys in the sport that have a bit of a cloud and, and tend to get a bit of grief. Um, and, and to be, and I guess I'm also one that people would love to point the finger at because I associate with, with pro cyclists because I train with them. And to the point, you know, Sebastian Kinlay was one that publicly criticized me in front of everyone at Challenge Roth before the start. Um, you know, I'd done Nice the week before I'd been at a team sky training camp all week and rocked up to Roth just because I love competing. And, uh, he was, Oh, you know, very vocal about it and said oh if you perform there's you know there's obviously something sus going on today you know and I was like Sebi man what oh no you're bad for the sport you you know you bring this bad culture you hang around with cyclists and you must be a doper as well and blah 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 I said and and I kind of was happy that he said something because I had wondered what the perception of me was like and for someone so high profile in the sport to actually publicly in front of a lot of people say it I was actually kind of admired him for actually fessing up and you know people obviously said listen Sebi you calmed him down and he came and apologized and I said Sebi it's okay mate I mean I'd prefer someone like you say it to my face than people talk about it behind my back right but I said he said you know it's just there's a lot of people saying a lot of things about you and I just they always say it to me and and I was just got fed up when I saw you just rock in here and you look fresh and happy. And that just seems impossible. No one does stuff like that, you know, like the way you do it. And I said, Sebi, you know, the reason that I set the bar so high, you know, for myself with, regarding the bike, like training with those guys is because someone like you is capable of riding with me, but you get off and run a 240 marathon. Now, I actually did a, a, a four-hour time trial ride, with, ride on the time trial bike with Chris Froome not long ago, and he had to actually tap out. Like, he wanted to, after about three and a half hours, he's like, nah, I've had enough. Like, he, he wanted to stop and swap and get on his road bike. Like, yeah, I said, you're able to do that, yet get off and run a 244 marathon. And 
the cyclists admire you for that. They admire the level of you guys. They think it's incredible. And the fact that I have to train with them and have to maintain that level to be somewhat competitive. And that was right. a real, that really put him back in his heels. He was like, whoa, you know, he, he just didn't expect that, you know. I guess they have this perception that, you know, pro cyclists are, you know, pro cyclists and they're, you know, doing all these big races. They make a lot of money, so they must be so good and so strong and blah, blah, blah. But the reality is these guys at the top of Ironman are freaking incredible. They are absolutely incredible. And that is why I, you know, have the best swimming coaches in the world. I have the best cycling coaches in the world and obviously you know associated with nike i have the best running support you could have on the planet so it's because of the level of of comp of competitors i'm racing against so that was a great thing and and from that sebi became obviously a great friend you know and he became an advocate even and a supporter of mine certainly you know if anyone says anything after that he definitely defends me um, I remember Tim Reed though taking the opportunity to rip into him and force him to do a second apology. <laughs> yeah, so tell us, tell us how you get along with some of the other top guys. So obviously you've got you know this little bromance going with Lionel Sanders on social media. You've got you, you clearly have a history, but uh, now it sounds like an amicable one with with Sebi Keenley. Tell us how yeah. you get on with with some of the other top pros in the sport. Yeah, well, Tim Reed and I went to school together on Lord Howe Island back when we were. You know, oh, I didn't know six, that. Cool. Seven, eight, nine years old. Yeah, well, I, that's where we grew up. So uh, I was born in Tassie. I moved to Port Macquarie when I was two with my mum. And then uh, uh, my grandfather, so mum's dad and, and grandma, they lived on Lord Howe Island. And so when I was in, yeah, five or six, we moved to the island for, for most of primary school. And uh, Tim Reed was there at the same time. So, you know, I went to school with him. His dad was the local doctor. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I've oh, known cool. Tim for God, thirty years. <laughs> That's a long time. And as you know, you know, we stay together in Kona, and um, you know, we've always remained really close. And you know, I guess each other's biggest fan. Um, you know, I remember I was at Malibu, I was at Carbon Beach watching uh, watching my phone in twenty twenty uh, yeah twenty sixteen when he won worlds. Twenty one yeah. worlds, yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I was just so excited for him, and always always excited, obviously raced in Port Macquarie last year and that was it was great we were both there because you know it wasn't a big field but I think between the pair of us we made it quite a spectacle and um so um yeah he's obviously the one I'm I'm closest to a huge fan of Lucy I mean I you know I love what she does you know you just you're always trying to beat her in the water I know this oh god you know that's my yeah I mean if I can beat her you know if I can swim quicker than her in Kona I'm really confident so um that's that's my goal to out swim Lucy and and to run quicker than Rini really um, I think if I could put that together, then I'd be, uh, I'd be doing pretty well. Um, yeah, Lionel's great. Um, just a great character and, you know, wears his heart on his sleeve. And, you know, you just, I just love the guys like a Joe Skipper, the, you know, the transparency. You see how hard they work and, yeah. and you, you, see, you see them go to races and you see them have success and, and you see them suffer and you see them bounce back. And, um, you yeah, know, I really like, really like those stories as opposed to the guys that sort of keep everything hidden and then sort of just appear out of nowhere. And, uh, you know, um, so, um, yeah, so I guess they're, they're, they're my, they're my they're favorite. Picks. Yeah. yeah. So folks at home, we have uh, less than 10 minutes left. So if you've got any more questions for Cameron, keep them coming in. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so a question that we had from social earlier in the week, and it's probably one you get asked a lot is what's your advice for somebody starting out with triathlon? Uh, well, you know, I'd, I'd say the most important thing is, and I was talking to this with um, my coach tonight, it was about swimming. Um, you know, there's, it might, I mean, riding a bike, obviously, you know, you, you can sort of freewheel, running where you can walk. You know, swimming, if you can't swim, you sink and you drown. So, um, you know, you don't really have an option than, than trying to be as competent as you possibly can in the swim. You know, don't sort of you know, get the first part right. Because if you get off to a good start in the swim, it really does make the rest of your day, you know, quite a lot different to when you have a bad start to the day. So, uh, you know, if you're not a competent swimmer, um, that would be my first thing. Just start with, you know, find a good group to swim with or just get in the water and swim and get yourself confident, you know, depending on what your goals are of how fast you want to swim. Mm -hmm. And, um, And if you are obviously a great swimmer, you come from a swimming background, well then, um, yeah, you know, obviously then you can focus more on the, on the bike and, and the run, I guess next the, you know, the run would be most important because that's where you tend to get injured. And that's the one that I've found personally, it could be different for others, but 
takes the most time to develop, you know, the, the ability to, to handle the load for the training that you need to do to, to then go and race yeah, and you, sort of enjoy that. Um, it takes, you know, it's taken me years, you know, to gradually build up. And um, I actually ran into Mike Woods today out training, uh, the Canadian. He's run a sub four minute mile. He, he rides for EF and uh, one of the best cyclists in the world now. But uh, he said to me that he really wants to get into, you know, do some Ironmans. He didn't really specify at what level, but, you know, he wants to catch up at some point and, and talk to me about that. And, and I said, you know, I guess off, just off the top of my head, the biggest thing at the start is having the patience to, to allow your legs to get strong enough to handle the run, you know, and most people. Yeah, because you guys have got the engine, the aerobic engine, cardiovascular engine, but not maybe the wheels. Yeah, and yeah. a lot of people have that. I mean, a lot of people come from a reasonably fit background, and so you can go and go and go, but then the problem is in running, generally you don't get much of a warning <laughs> when, <laughs> when you get injured, when something goes wrong. Um, your body will handle quite a lot of punishment before it just sort of basically breaks. And... Um, it's very unique running in that regard. So you need to, you need to be very cautious. And, um, and that was something I learned, you know, working with the, with the Nike group, you know, that obviously. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Cause I know you were, you were involved in, with Kipchoge and his, some of his training, right? The sub yeah, two. Well, yeah. The breaking two group. I mean, the guys behind all that. Um, yeah. so, and the big thing with those, with him is, yeah, he, he, he certainly doesn't push it. You know, I mean, the, the, what's most important is to be able to, you know, consistently train for a long period of time and have consistency with it. Um, well, what he, they've found to, to, be, to be consistent with performance. And, and that's, um, that's the key. Otherwise, getting injured and having lots of layoffs, you get lots of, you know, big sort of whoop de doopties as opposed to sort of keeping a nice, nice consistent curve where, you know, you're never too far from your best. And, um, I guess sometimes you might luck it out and get it right on the big day, but then, you know, you have the bad period at other times, um, throughout the year. Um, and so that's the, that's the really big thing with running that we always talk about is, um, you know, leaving, you know, if you've got a little bit left for tomorrow, save it for tomorrow, don't use it today. So, um, which, you know, I guess maybe you'd think would be, counterintuitive to a lot of what we hear about running and, and training. But um, if you look at Kipchoge, I mean, what, he hasn't been beaten however many years, you know, 10 years or something in the marathon, never missed a race, you know, just so consistent. So, um, you know, being, knowing that you're doing, you know, working off a similar schedule to someone like that gives you a fair bit of confidence to have that patience. And, and when we started working together a couple of years ago, you know, it was always something that was going to take, you know, three, five years to really get to, you know, where we ultimately want to go. Yeah, so we're only, yeah. we're only in the middle of that and, and we're still sort of doing different bits and pieces in that foundation part of it. I'm, I'm certainly not training hard running. You know, I'm never getting back and exhausted from a run. Um, we still feel like I've got to build, build a base. I mean, the reality is I'm capable of running at the pace that you need to to run at the fastest guys in, in Ironman. But you need that foundation to be able to do it basically on any day. Otherwise, you're going to have those those bad days, and um, and yeah, if if a bad day comes in Kona, like I guess last year for me, I didn't have my best day. You want it still to be okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, not completely I terrible. Still, yeah, I was able to still you know gut it out and have an okay day. But you want to keep, you want to be able to do it. You want to be able to have some amazing performances on your worst days, if that makes sense. Yes, yeah, for sure. So you've talked to us a little bit about your running, but your swimming is obviously something that you've definitely focused on. Uh, and Jared from Facebook wants to know, what is the best thing you have done to help improve your swim? Um, oh, the best thing. Gosh. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, this isn't going to help a lot. But thinking back to rowing days and, and the concept of, you know, getting hold of the water and, and accelerating through the water and uh, feeling connected with the water, I think personally for me is, is the biggest feeling that I'm searching for. And so, um, you know, I'm lucky to have that as a background. Um, but, yeah, you know, I think probably as far as a set session goes that I've found gives me the most confidence when I go to racing is just swimming for the distance, you know, straight swims. Even if it's in a 25-meter pool and you're doing a freaking thousand tumble turns, just swimming straight for four or five K, you know, not stopping. Um, just giving, just letting your body know, I mean, the same as what you would, you know, going for a long ride. I mean, that's why you ride for five hours. It's You're not riding at the intensity, but your body is trained to just be riding and, 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 and working for that long. 
um, even running. I run a lot of marathons in training. You know, at times I'm doing one every second week. And so, um, you know, it's it, – and that way you go to a race and it's like, oh, whatever. Yeah, just another marathon. It's another marathon. Piece, piece of cake, you know. A good story on that, I people like with a running one um, leading into just before Italy, we did a two-hour run. Um, both Kipchoge and I had one anyway and I sent through to Brett got the file and he, he sent me, he said I was, you know, it was one of my better two-hour runs up here in Andorra, the course I do and he shot me through the picture of um, Kipchoge's file and uh, I'd run 30.3K or something and, and Kipchoge ran 40.7 in two Whoa. hours. That was about three or four weeks before he's breaking two things. So, you know, there you go. You know, you got to... And that was, that was at El Dorat, you know, at 2,200 metres. So he obviously knew if he could do that then, he was, he was pretty confident he could pop down to Vienna and, um, and bang it out. So, um, yeah, you've got to train Very your cool. body. To, you've got to train your body for the, for the effort. And um, it doesn't obviously need to be at the intensity, but just, just the muscle memory. So as far as swimming goes, again, back to what I was saying before about getting into it, just having confidence that you can get in the water and swim the distance. Worst case scenario, you might lose some time, but you know you're going to get out of the water and be in good shape. Yeah, absolutely. Cameron Worth, that is about all we've got time for today, but thank you very much for joining us. I know a lot of people enjoyed it and uh, have found it very, very helpful. Uh, we wish you well for the rest of the year and we'll be following you closely. So thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers. Okay, thank you, Cameron, for joining us on Triathlete Live. Our next show will be Wednesday, July 1st, 3 p.m. Mountain Time, 5 p.m. Eastern, when Jerry Rodriguez, open water swim coach and expert, will be joining us live. You can submit your questions via social in the week before the show. And this will be a great opportunity to ask all your burning questions about your swim training and how to get your swim fitness back after so long out of the water. So we look forward to seeing you then. In the meantime, happy training.